Welcome to another episode of Curbside Consult, where we take a deep dive into the practice-changing research published in the New England Journal of Medicine. In today's podcast, we are pleased to have Dr. Kevin Schulman and Dr. Byron Crow for a discussion of digital health and the paving of a new frontier in healthcare. I'm your host, Dr. Kristen Nottage, one of this year's editorial fellows. We are all still socially distanced, and so are recording remotely. We hope that you're keeping well and safe out there. There's been no better time to test the values of digital health than where we find ourselves today. In the midst of a pandemic with a virus that has forced us all to keep our distance, reduce contact, and yet remain vigilant about our own health. What does healthcare from a distance look like? The innovations of digital health seek to bridge that distance and spatial divide, providing healthcare tools and providers to our fingertips. In this episode of Curbside Consult, we are joined by Dr. Kevin Schulman, Professor of Medicine and Associate Chair in the Department of Medicine at Stanford University. Dr. Schulman has written extensively on the topic of digital health and has recently authored two prospective articles on this topic for the journal. I'm also pleased to be joined by Dr. Byron Crow, an internal medicine resident at the University of Colorado and the Associate Medical Director at Solera Health, a company working to create networks of digital health tools. Let's dive right in. Welcome to you both, and thank you for taking this time to join us. We hope that you and your teams are keeping well and safe. Thank you for uh, having us, and it's really a pleasure to be chatting today. Likewise. Delighted to join. Great. Thanks, Byron. If I may begin with you, you're a resident, like many of our listening audience. How did you become interested in digital health, and why is this an area that residents should learn about? Also, how do you find the time? Chris, it's a really interesting question. And I had a very early experience before med school in healthcare quality and safety, which I introduced me to systems thinking and thinking about how the healthcare system works as a whole. And I did a, a lot of work in med school in healthcare quality. And through that work and trying to improve value in healthcare, I started to look at the transformation of other industries, especially in particular the financial industry, and see how they were integrating digital tools and how it was changing our lives. I think we all remember when we used to cash a check at the bank, and now we, we just do it from our phones. And I was thinking about, you know, when is this going to happen in medicine, and started to see some of the signals of this transformation in the last few years. I was lucky enough to meet the chief health officer for the company I now work for, Solera Health, as a, an intern, and we, uh, we started working together, and eventually it led to a job offer, and my residency was flexible enough to allow me to split my time 50-50. So I took my third year, and I've spread it out over two years, and I do half my time as a resident doing clinical work, and then the other half in my role at Solera as associate medical director, helping to design networks of digital health tools that address the physical, mental, and social determinants of health. Excellent. Wow. Well, I'm sure that keeps you very, very busy. So let's jump into this topic of digital health and exactly what it is. Dr. Schulman, you've written, thought, and taught extensively in this area. So could you give us an idea of what is meant by digital health and perhaps some examples of innovations we may already use that would fall under this umbrella? Yeah, so thanks. I think 
we want to think about digital tools uh, broadly. I mean, we're all we're doing this off our phones, our digital phones rather than our analog phones. But the idea of using information technology to improve the practice of medicine has uh, been around for a long, long time. The first place that we've thought about that is the vein of all of our existence, electronic health records, and how do we collect data electronically and potentially use that data electronically. I'll talk more about that. But the other technologies that we use all the time, uh, you'd probably talk to your friends and relatives uh, using images and pictures and is how do we use a virtual medium for interaction? And so the idea of having digital visits also has been around for quite a time. I found actually looking back, uh, we wrote a paper about this. It was a huge issue in the Navy on ships in the 1990s where, you know, you would have a medical officer with 200 people on the ship and they'd find something that they didn't know how to deal with. And so could you consult in with a specialist to help you through that case? So those of you up in the middle of the night really could feel for those people and the value that you might get from a digital consult. Here at Stanford, just to prove the point, we had some capacity to do virtual visits with patients. Uh, the Bay Area traffic is horrendous. And then pre-COVID eras, it would take an hour or two for our patients to come in. And if you could do a digital visit, you'd eliminate that entire burden for patients, might improve compliance, might make them less harried when they come to the office. And uh, with COVID, we had a couple of arguments. One was, obviously, patients didn't want to come in to see the doctor. As providers, we didn't want the patients to come in, especially patients who might be COVID positive because we didn't have enough PPE to feel that we were safe. And we migrated really quickly to digital tools by mid-April, about 70% of our visits at Stanford, our outpatient visits, were digital. I was just rounding last week, and so when we see COVID patients in the hospital, and like many of you all, we probably do, uh, we Zoom with them. We don't down and uh, doff and, and risk exposures. We now work to minimize all those things. And those have been great points of contact. We've been arguing over whether or not we could do these things for 20 years, and overnight, we stood them up in Stanford and all around the country. I asked our chief medical information officer how we did that. You know, we must have violated all kinds of policies that were holding us back for all these years. And they said, no, it was actually a business decision. We had this capability a long time ago. Uh, there were some regulatory quirks, but we just decided not to do it or didn't have a compelling business case to do it. And it'll be interesting to see on the back end of this whether there's patients really like this new experience and demand that we keep providing these services. Absolutely. I can see how COVID-19 would have propelled and compelled uh, healthcare systems to think on their feet. And obviously, there weren't really any reasons not to do it before, but now we have so many reasons to continue. And so I wanted to ask, what are digital health tools and how can clinicians integrate these tools into their practice? So I think beyond telemedicine, we need to think about how we use technology in healthcare and how we use technology in medicine should be the same way we use technology in the rest of our lives. So, for example, I'm sure today everyone on this uh, podcast is handing someone a piece of paper. And imagine your discharge summary or your patient information form. Imagine in the rest of your life, you never get a piece of paper. You get an Instagram post or a Snapchat or a tweet. 
we use images in our lives. And so imagine instead that we use the video discharge summary where we actually just recorded an interview that we're having with a patient and sent it to them for them to use whenever they want or share with their kids or their relatives or their trusted loved ones or to go back to when they said, you know, I don't, I wasn't really clear on what the doctor said. But beyond that, that's just the beginning. Do you think about the data that we have in healthcare? It's a real interesting problem that we have is where are your data? So all the people listening on this call today went to high school somewhere, went to college somewhere else, went to medical school somewhere else, and now they're doing residency. And so if we had a pop quiz and said, when you were 12 and the doctor gave you a medicine that you were allergic to, what was it? How many of you could actually pull up the original record and figure that out? Or heaven forbid you had an orthopedic procedure for some sports injury. Do we know whether you had an implant or whether that implant was actually metric or SAE if we had to take it back out? So even this simple use case of how do we understand our own personal health information? Imagine, heaven forbid, you showed up in the emergency room tomorrow night and I had to go back and look at your record. Would it even be possible for me to do so? So one of the questions we have is how do we get data about all of us, all of our data, not just the data that we have in our institution, our electronic health record, but people go across the street, they go to nursing homes. How do we put all that data together so we can begin to act on it? And then once we have that data together, there's a couple of different things that we've seen as, as really important ways in which we could use data to help people. So one, I'm here at Stanford, so our world is machine learning. And so how do we find hidden signals in that data to help me stratify patients in new ways or help me to find patients that are falling through the cracks? The next thing is actually what we don't realize what Amazon does when you click on Amazon is it uses your data to provide services or Netflix. What you may not know is when you click on Netflix, you get a different view of the films than your neighbor, even if it's the same movie, because they customize the art to you and your interest. And so we could do that in healthcare as well. And then finally, we could push out, rather than you have to come see us as a provider, we can begin to push out your healthcare, just our prevention guidelines. So imagine each of us at the beginning of the year, we know how old you are. And we say, you know, here's your calendar of events for the year. You don't have to come in for me to tell you you're doing these things. We can actually do them remotely, scheduling remotely at your convenience might make it much easier for you to actually complete those tasks. And obviously, we might actually even include information. Well, if you schedule at 10 o'clock at night, maybe we would waive your copay uh, because we're not using equipment at that point. So that's just the beginning of all the different ways we can envision using digital tools to help us try and achieve our goals in terms of taking care of patients. Dr. Schulman, your article from a I think a few months ago, I really enjoyed your point about this transition from an analog healthcare system based on face-to-face interactions, in-person care delivery between two human beings to a digital-based system. And I had a really interesting experience with this just a few weeks ago. I had a hip injury on my bike and I reached out to one of the digital health companies that we've been chatting with. And I said, hey, can I use your tool? I actually I have a reason to use it now. And I did all of my physical therapy using an app that was guided by a human, but was semi-synchronous. And then the app could tell if I was getting better or not. It could adjust exercises. And 
five years ago, I would have had to go down the street and book physical therapy appointments. And it would be really hard to do with my residency shifts. And now this thing I used to do that was an analog interaction to Dr. Schulman's point was now a fully digital interaction with this combination of humans and machines. And I think about extrapolating that to the many functions we have in medicine that are analog right now. I'm in a hematology clinic this week. We're, we're doing a lot of in-person INR checks. And how do we turn that into a totally digital interaction? You can get your INR checked at home. It uploads it to software as a medical device that interprets the INR, changes your warfarin dose, sends that to your nearest pharmacy or to Amazon. They send you back your new pills as soon as you're going to run out. At some point, some of that will be too complex for a computer and you'll need human supervision, but it can all be powered digitally. And so I, I really like this idea of there's this whole digital health ecosystem that can start to gradually replace all the analog things we do day in and day out with things that are powered by technology that used to just be powered by humans. Well, it certainly sounds very new frontierish and very almost Jetson-like. I'm interested in that software as a medical device concept that you raised, Byron, and I think it weaves quite nicely into the AI frontier that uh, Dr. Schulman spoke about, especially what they're doing at Stanford. But how can we make sure or how could clinicians evaluate these tools in terms of evidence and efficacy and uh, ensure that the service being provided is of the right level for the patient? I think that's a great question. In our piece, I said one of the most critical things we need to do right now, now that we went to this rushed implementation, is to begin to evaluate what we did, what are the benefits, what are the risks, were any of the concerns that people had about these harms of telemedicine, were they being realized? So I think that's the first step to begin to build the evidence base that, in fact, we can begin to do this safely and at scale. Obviously, behind the scenes, unless you're a Kaiser resident, you wouldn't know that Kaiser actually, as a health plan, is already doing about 50% of their patient touches digitally. So it's really more of us than academic medicine. They're starting to catch up with what the frontier is. But I think there are broader questions here about how do we use technology appropriately? How do we learn as providers to evaluate and use technologies? Are we safe to practice? Imagine that we had some amazing machine learning algorithm that's like a Ferrari, and we're only licensed to drive Ford. You're not going to be safe using a Ferrari if you're not trained to do it. And so it's also on us. Like as you think about your residency, how much time are you spending learning how to do televisits? Your faculty is learning at the same time as you are, and you guys might actually be better than we are. But is the new better than the old? Is the new worse than the old? Is an age-old question in medicine, and we're always very, very conservative because we're supposed to do no harm. But we have to recognize that we're doing lots of harms every single day. There's the very large harms in terms of the system failures that the National Academy of Medicine has written about in the past that generated this whole quality initiative in healthcare. But there's the harms you see day to day when you see your patients, the two-hour commute that I talked about, the patients who couldn't find their medication, couldn't get back to the doctor, didn't follow up for their mammogram. Those are all harms. You could say, well, they didn't come back to me as a provider so that I could supervise that. And that doesn't happen in the rest of our lives. We need reminders. We need tools. We need reinforcement 
to help us navigate some really complex issues. Some of the times us as providers are really, really valuable in making sure that happens and helping patients in terms of shared decision-making and judgment. And some of the times we're lousy at it. I would feel horrible for a patient to have to come drive two hours to come into the office for a warfarin check. And so there's a balance out there. Uh, We look at harms one way, but the patients look at harms a very different way. And I think we need to figure out a way to, to balance both of those perspectives. I'll just piggyback off of that, Krista. There's a growing set of valuation-based standards from the FDA and their Digital Health Innovation Action Plan, which puts forward some methods on how they're going to be thinking about these tools and what level of FDA oversight they need. And kind of at the pointy end of that, trying to say, just like we need to know that drugs are safe and efficacious and have high standards, but we have over-the-counter drugs that we can say, hey, the risks are reasonable that people can take these on their own. And then we have drugs that are prescription-based. There are digital health tools that are going to be OTC, so to speak. You could argue many of those are already out there, wellness apps or even some other consumer-facing apps. And then there's going to be software, software as a medical device, other applications that are going to be deployed toward high-stakes diagnoses or high-stakes changes in therapy and are going to need a higher level of regulatory oversight. So FDA is putting forward some frameworks for that. And then I've been really interested in seeing how the professional societies have started to respond to this and use their position as a trusted resource to start helping guide clinicians who want to integrate these kinds of tools into their armamentarium. I can see a scenario in, let's say, four or five years where, just like the ADA gives metformin a recommendation and clinicians adopt that, the ADA will have evidence-based digital health tools for managing diabetes. And we'll give those a recommendation and put them through a rigorous evidence-based process. I don't think we're there yet, but I can see folks moving in that direction. In particular, the NHS actually has an apps library that they put forward that has been vetted by the NHS and folks in the NHS can access it. The APA has put forward a list of apps that they think are evidence-based for treatment of mental health issues. And then the AHA and AMA have a list of home blood pressure monitors that they think are that they validated and feel like are good to use at home. So there's a lot of groups who are trying to answer this question of how can we use the way we already do things with making sure our drugs and devices are safe and making sure our clinicians are equipped with knowledge and trust that they can use these as part of their practice. How can the the specialty societies, federal regulators move this forward? There's even another organization, Express Scripts, that launched a standalone digital health formulary. So Just like pharmacy benefits managers have formularies of drugs that they use for their organizations. I could imagine if you're going to Kaiser versus Blue Cross versus Aetna, their formulary of digital health tools is going to be a little different. Maybe if you're choosing a Kaiser plan, you're going to have access to a different suite of applications than if you go to Blue Cross and maybe you'll make a purchasing decision based on that. So I see a lot of folks moving in this direction. And I also think there's a lot of room Uh, in particular, major specialty societies to start to dive into this and play a role. Well, I'm so happy that you both have touched on kind of how this move will be regulated and how we will have to engage in the conversation of whether these services are safe. Um, We can see that they are of benefit and will become even more so as we learn more about how to use them and apply what information they deliver. You both have introduced a term to me 
um, in our discussions before this recording, which was an API or an application programming interface. And I wanted you to explain to our audience what APIs are, because my understanding is that it would weave together quite a few tools to put into, I guess, your toolbox of digital health applications that you could use to manage your own personal health care. So let me know if I'm on the right track and if you could expand a bit on what these APIs are and the role they will play moving forward in digital health. Yeah, so APIs are kind of just connectors between databases, maybe the best way or the easiest way to think about them. But the broader issue is as a country we've adopted electronic health records, and the electronic health records are based on very, very old technologies. I mean, they, the core programming language dates to the 1960s. And I was signing my charts yesterday. Our electronic health record was copyrighted in 1979. And the world's changed since then. So one of the issues that electronic health records really have to work on is just building data within a system within here at Stanford. These days, the value is moving data around again, to the, your physical therapy app or in and out of a database. And APIs are the connectors in the way to do that. So one way of thinking about organizing data right now is around providers, like your electronic health record at Stanford. And I already talked a, little, a lot about the limitations of that use case. It's great if you come back to Stanford all the time and if you've been cared for at Stanford since birth. But otherwise, even at Stanford, we have a problem because the children's hospital, I should say, Electronic health record doesn't really talk to adult hospital records. But as you move around in your life, where are your data and how you organize them? So one of the things that we have is something called personal health records that Apple has developed most recently. But that would be taking this API and moving your data out of your electronic health record and into your own personal health record so you can use your data. You can track your own cholesterol the same way you track your bank account data. You could track your prevention. You could track your diabetes. So all of those things are taking the data from the static way we've created data environment to use these analog and digital things. Most of what we're doing in a traditional electronic health record is typing stuff that's analog. I mean, it's not machine readable. It's not codable. We can't do things with the data other than at best we can search for it. An API is a requirement that actually I get that data into some kind of computable format and standards are being developed and push that out wherever you want that data. So I could get an electronic health record. I've written a case study, a really fun case study about Amazon Alexa. And imagine you pushed your health data to Alexa and then Alexa would talk to you every morning about how you're doing today or for the COVID crisis, do a symptom assessment every single day as part of a machine learning script. So lots of different ways we can think about how we want data to move around to make it much more valuable to you as an individual patient and more valuable because the services that you're getting, the digital services, are going to be powered by your actual health data. Everything that Dr. Shulman's saying, I agree with. And I, I think we've all delivered care to someone or many people who pick one health system and stick with it because it makes everything so much easier because all their records are in one place. But that, in a way, is this structural limitation to choice, where once they're being seen at, whether it's Stanford or 
University of Colorado or wherever, if all their data is in one place, it's hard to talk to other places. And so even if a, another place feels really appealing and you might say, oh, I'd rather go get my care at XYZ, it's really hard to do that. And imagine the same thing if Google and Apple use these approaches of, hey, if you have an iPhone, isn't it great? You can upload all your photos to the cloud. You have this total Mac ecosystem and that gives a lot of value to consumers and it reduces their desire to switch to Android or vice versa. But new federal rules have started to change this landscape where now in theory, it's gonna be a lot easier for folks to share data and there's gonna be fewer barriers to big technology organizations blocking data and preventing sharing of data. So if that pans out the way that we're thinking about it, it could be a really exciting time where you might have all your healthcare data in the Apple health chart, to Dr. Shulman's point. But if you say, I'm kind of set up with Apple, uh, I want to switch to something else. I want to switch to Android, Google health chart. The use of APIs makes it potentially a lot more easy. All those data are out in the world in a standardized format that is accessible by uh, a third party. And you can say, you know, I'm going to close out my Apple health chart and I'm going to take those same data and bring it into Google Health Chart, just a hypothetical example. So now all of a sudden the, the switching cost is a lot lower to take your health data and put it in a different tool that you may like better, that may work better for you, rather than being locked into a particular tool or way of doing things. And I think I'm particularly excited by that. I think it has the potential to drive a lot of innovation where folks can really get creative with how they're able to help patients either interpret their health data, use their health data to make important decisions, or just uh, port their data from place to place in a way that's a lot easier for patients and doctors who are needing to use those data to make decisions. I think Byron's touching on a big underlying economic issue uh, that's developed in healthcare. So he talked about if you want to get access to your data, you had to go back to the same healthcare system. And so imagine uh, the business model of the healthcare system is great if you want your data even if we provide poor quality service or we don't have the expertise in the area that you really need, you still have to kind of come back to us. And that's a great business model for a health system. Alternatively, the way we do things in the rest of the world is if you're not providing a high quality service, I can move my data, I can move my banking, I can move any other service. And so what actually the Congress has looked at is that health systems are using their data anti-competitively to lock you in, in order to get access to your data, you have to go back. And so 21st Century Cures was actually legislation that was passed at the end of the Obama administration, which required you actually health systems to give you access to your data. But I think the underlying economic arguments are really important. I want you as a consumer to be able to shop, shop for your preventive services, get the best price on your colonoscopy or mammogram, or get the best price on your medicine. Healthcare is incredibly expensive, and we use these tools outside of healthcare to help people shop. You go on Amazon, you don't pick the highest cost supplier. So also imagine a world where we use these tools to drive down the cost of healthcare and make it more affordable for everybody. That's a really important dimension to this as well. Absolutely. Well, I'm definitely almost sold on it. I and mean, I think that <laughs> your mention of competitive offerings is appealing because it will also drive persons to give quality because, of course, ratings will come into that. So you're offering a service that's uh, less costly, but how have your patients rated the tool or have they rated the interaction, you know? 
And I think that that's good in terms of raising the standard all around. But I do have one little concern, if I may ask. Um, when you talk about data sharing, there is some fear about kind of like a big brother effect and who's really seeing my data, who's seeing my personal information, especially when you're talking about like insurance companies, discrimination based on your medical health records, et cetera. So I know that you may not have all of these answers, but we do have to think about how to still protect patient privacy while having these data exchanges and uh, particularly their public persona and their anonymity as a patient, how to protect the individual while being able to use these data currencies and yeah, and be able to use these transferable mechanisms in healthcare. I think that's absolutely a critical issue. Um, but I want us to be careful to try and understand what the concern is absolutely around privacy and your own individual privacy. But you share data all the time as an individual, and you feel perfectly comfortable. Uh, you store stuff in Box or Google Cloud or Amazon Web Services. The capacity to do this has evolved very, very rapidly. One of the concerns that I would have on the opposite side is that we're using regulatory barriers like HIPAA, again, anti-competitively. So if I'm the CEO of a very large health system, the last thing I want to do is lose patients to lower-cost providers. That's a really hard position for me to be in. And hiding behind privacy is one way I can continue to protect the status quo. And so one of the things we talk about in our article right now, HIPAA is a 1996 law that protects patients' privacy. Think about the world in 1996 way we used information and what the protections around information were, and it's, it was obviously all this is very, very nascent. And the question is, is that relevant today? So in the midst of the pandemic, CMS, HHS actually has used their enforcement discretion to say we're not going to enforce it during this crisis so that you can use things like FaceTime to talk with your patient. And I think one of the things we have to get back and look at is, are these HIPAA privacy standards really help? Or did they hinder? Obviously, we thought they hindered so much, we relaxed them during the crisis. But we also have an economic crisis in healthcare. And so the idea that FaceTime has whatever encryption it has behind it is probably more than the encryption that was available in 1996 when HIPAA was first put in place. And so I think it's also a really good time to look at some of these issues and absolutely your individual privacy should be front and center. One is you as a consumer make choices about your privacy all the time. And I think healthcare is one of the areas where you can also do that. A lot of my students don't care. All of their data is on Instagram and all over the internet, and they don't really care that their data is out there. Others care a lot. So as a consumer, you could choose which apps to use based on what they're going to do with your data. It'd be nice to have really dedicated healthcare offerings and push transparency in terms of data use and data privacy for healthcare apps. But in the consumer world, it's the consumers have an option, and those who are most concerned about their privacy can do a lot to make sure that their concerns are addressed. But on the national level, we've had this drumbeat around these issues around specific regulatory regimes. And there's almost no evidence that that regime's better than other regimes that are available to us now. So 
I think we could do this all very safely. We have to be cognizant of it, but I also don't think that should hold us back. I frame it as somewhat of consumer attitudes versus consumer choice. I was out in your neck of the woods, Dr. Shulman, last year at the Rock Health Conference, and this question came up, hey, what do people think about giving their health data to major technology companies, Apple, Google, Facebook, et cetera? And there was a poll that showed people really had a low level of trust, even in major players who they've already given a lot of their information to. But I don't know if anyone knows if that's actually going to hold anyone back from giving those people their data nonetheless. Amazon comes to us and says, hey, we've got the most secure digital platform. This isn't like the website where you buy, I don't know, an Instant Pot and we're going to then sell you the knives and the forks. This is all secure. This is your health data. And oh, by the way, it's 50% less and 1,000% more convenient than your local healthcare system. I think that's going to be hard to turn down. And I think there's, to Dr. Shulman's point about not wanting to hold things back, that there's so many benefits of this transition. And frankly, those players have such a strong economic incentive to do it right and not have big privacy issues and not take big risks with that, especially early on. I think we're going to see a push towards folks in this world really emphasizing privacy um, and then this is just my opinion, but consumers gravitating toward these tools because they're ultimately so much more efficient and easier to use than what we have right now. But that's just my thought right now. Yeah. One other thing to think about in the current world, we're all being monetized for search or for our shopping preferences. The huge opportunity in healthcare is actually not mining our data for advertising, but actually mining our data to provide services. Healthcare is a $4 trillion industry. If I moved a trillion dollars of it to a digital e-commerce platform, I could do that safely and securely and lock in your data because I have enough ways to monetize that. And so I think Byron's right. As you think about this evolution, it's easy to imagine that the healthcare services piece of technology would go a very, very different direction uh, than we've seen in other digital services. And I think that'll help both. That'll help our lives in the healthcare side, but it'll also help the rest of our digital lives as technology companies find that there are other revenue sources other than monetizing the data. I hadn't previously thought about your point about where the value add is in data mining. And it's making me think about this point around the analogy of the Uber versus taxi in the industry disruption. And one takeaway from that is when Uber disrupted the taxi cab industry, it grew the market for transportation expanded. And I always come back to that of saying, it's not a zero-sum game, to your point. There's the potential to shift digitally and then expand digitally as people start feeling that, wow, I can get even more value add from my health in a digital ecosystem than I was doing before, and I'm willing to spend some money to realize that. So there's the shift piece in my mind, and then how does this market grow even beyond what it already is? Not just replacing what's already there, but expanding that horizon in a way that helps us all make the healthy choices we want to make. Actually, that's a great point. I, with a couple of current residents, former students, we wrote a paper on the sources and uses of funds in healthcare. One of the things that's important to realize is that most Americans, fortunately, are very healthy when they buy health insurance, but they're the ones actually we're not catering to right now. And so otherwise healthy people, the lowest 10% of healthcare spending is 70% of the population. Try getting a primary care doctor appointment at any one of our healthcare systems. 
those are the people that are supporting the healthcare system, and yet they're the ones that are most neglected in the current business model. So even if all we do is expand our access to primary care by providing some of these tools to the population that's really paying for healthcare in this country, not using healthcare, that would be a huge opportunity to do a much better job for the bulk of the population. I'm just loving this discussion. You're bouncing ideas off of each other and really growing our understanding around digital health. But the ways that these tools and the concepts are evolving, the consumer is also evolving. And so we will become more and more conversant in digital health and the use of these tools um, as time goes on. And of course, there will be a spectrum of response in terms of comfort, which tools they access based on what's being shared, et cetera. But I liked the introduction of the primary care aspect, and I kind of want to bring us to a close as we look ahead to the future and just think about or in which level of healthcare these tools are best directed. And um, you, Dr. Shulman, had written a piece for the journal and described how digital health models can help to bridge the gap that has been created between levels of healthcare, particularly accessing and supporting primary healthcare. So you discussed a little bit about how we know there's a deficit in service at the primary healthcare level, and most models have tried to remedy that with pumping out more doctors and filtering them through to the primary care. But perhaps we can bridge that gap with digital service provision instead. And so I wanted you to expand on that and kind of take us a little bit into where we could see the future going, maybe accessing this primary care route. Well, thanks, Krista. What we talked about before is if you think from the patient perspective about the services that you need as an individual, and we broke it up into three really big buckets. So one is prevention. Almost all of us make health decisions every single day when we decide what we're going to eat or how we're going to exercise. Most of the time, it's There's no physician involved in those interactions, but that's where we're creating health. And so imagine a set of digital tools that helps you with that. And Byron's uh, probably a Fitbit user in Colorado exercising on the weekend. So a lot of our patients aren't. So we can't just have a Fitbit set of tools. We have to have tools that meet people where they're at. So if they're on Facebook and watching television, how do we get those people engaged in improving their health with a digital tool that's really focused on that segment? And then we talked about acute care needs. So your child has an ear infection. Uh, how do we develop digital services that meet those acute care needs, some of which could be purely digital, some of this might require you to come in. Obviously, our drive-through COVID testing is a great acute care need. You're not feeling well, do a digital consult, we'll get a lab specimen, We'll get you the results really quickly. And then the bulk of healthcare we all know is around chronic care for patients with one or more chronic conditions, diabetes, hypertension, from hospital medicine, patients admitted with diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, cardiovascular disease. Well, those people are managing end-stage renal disease, really complex conditions, lots of different medicines, and it's an entirely different set of tools that would be really useful to that group. So rather than say patients, we talked about how do we think about ecosystems that are organizing around problems that people have. From a technology perspective, when you organize around problems, technology is a very efficient way to solve that because I can optimize technology around a specific set of processes. 
to use the lingo. And so if I can define these sets of processes as not the entire universe, but how do I build a front-end interface to do prevention for 100,000 people, that's a solvable problem. We could create a really nice solution there uh, that potentially is even customizable to different subsets of the population. So I think from a technology perspective, technologies around solving sets of problems From a clinical perspective, our job is to define the problems that we want technology to help us to solve. And then kind of to the looking forward piece of this, I know we're working with residents here and people in training. At some level, this can seem really scary that there's all these new things that we didn't train on. But I would say the opposite. It's an incredibly exciting time and incredibly exciting opportunity because actually it's your cohort that's going to both develop and learn how to and become expert in these tools. And so as you think about your first jobs or moving up in your career, your research career or, or op- aspirations for leadership, because you're going to be much more facile with how to build and use these and deploy these tools than the faculty at the, of my generation, you're going to find lots of exciting opportunities as this ecosystem continues to open up because they're not going to hire someone like me to program the WhatsApp for patients with diabetes, they're going to hire somebody that's on this podcast today. And Byron, do you have any advice for residents in terms of how to become more familiar with the digital health world? Is there anything that's happening in your program or that you've experienced that you could share with us? I think Dr. Schulman really hit the nail on the head that there is, this ecosystem is growing and evolving and expanding, and they need physicians and other members of the healthcare team to help bridge that divide and help identify and articulate the problem that then can be solved by technology and a great user experience. And when I think about if I'm a resident thinking about, okay, this is interesting, digital health, where do I go from here? I think what I recommend is think about all the conditions that you prescribe medicines for or give guidance for right now and just ask, what's the after that? That's almost cliche, right? But you'll start to find stuff. And if you start thinking about, hey, can I prescribe a piece of technology for this? Just the way I prescribe medicines, just the way I prescribe tests and imaging, whatever, I think it'll start to bring to the forefront all the different ways that people are helping solve these problems. And just like some medicines are better than others, some medicines have fewer or less side effects. Some digital health tools are better than others and some have stronger evidence or not, but at least it starts to get clinicians thinking about these tools the same way we think about our other therapies. And as more folks are becoming facile with these tools, I think the amount of scientific and clinical rigor around them is only going to increase, which I think is exciting and great for everybody. Wow. Well, thank you both. I think that in this discussion, I've seen that there's so many opportunities and innovations on the rise and so many solutions to the issues that we've all seen around us, which only gives more credence to the fact that we are the change agents that we've been waiting for. And it's really up to us to take a step and create authorship in this evolving healthcare world. And I'm happy to have had two of those leaders on with me today. Thank you, Dr. Shulman. Thank you, Byron. It's been wonderful having this discussion with you. I would again like to thank Dr. Shulman and Dr. Crow for sharing with us today the very exciting frontier of digital health. Curbside Consult is a production of the NEJM Group, and we come to you from NEJM Resident 360.
Our production team includes Karen Buckley, Kyle Simmons, Mike Thomasis, Kathy Stern, Tim Vining, and Scott Williams. Special thanks also to our NEJM education editor, Dr. O.P. Hamzik. If you have any feedback, questions, or suggestions for future podcast topics, please email us at resident360 at nejm.org. Remember to subscribe to the NEJM social media sites, including Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook via the nejm.org pages. On behalf of NEJM Resident 360, this is Dr. Krista Nottage signing off. Keep safe out there.